Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The rest of us will turn to Hebrews chapter 10 if you have your real physical Bibles. If not, turn there with your iPad or your iPhone or whatever tablet you have. If you don't have any of those, look on the board. But you ought to have a physical Bible. Amen. I think it's good if you have a real one. How are we going to have a sword drill if you don't have a Bible? Man, it's going to be whoever can type the fastest and the keyboards, you know. You might have to just learn just to talk to it, dictate, and everybody's talking. All mess up. I don't even know how accurate that's going to be. Praise God. But we, we, we aim to have some some sword drills in the near future, particularly downstairs in the fellowship hall. So get ready to, you know, get your Bibles and <clears throat> take it off the shelf and go, <laughs> amen, blow the dust off of it and get ready to use it and get used to flipping through the pages. Hallelujah. Otherwise, you can't play. Oh, my. Hallelujah. We got to have you on board. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 the writer says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 through verse 34. 31st chapter of Jeremiah, verse 31 through verse 34. Those three verses, that's where Hebrews is quoting from, where I just read to you from. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins, and their iniquities will I remember no more. And uh, hallelujah. It's, it's worthy to note that, uh, in fact, in, uh, uh, in what is it? In Hebrews, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I read you the wrong verse, didn't I? I jumped ahead of myself. It doesn't matter because I was, you know, it, it's interchangeable. So worry not. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 through 17. I'll come back to he was eight. eight. Uh, although it's in essence, essence the same thing. So, so watch this. Watch close. We read Hebrews 8. But Hebrews 10 through 14, uh, verse 14 through 17 says this. For by one offering he hath perfected for speaking of Jesus. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had, he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them that after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now the writer refers to this segment of scripture twice. But interestingly, when you go to Hebrews 8, as I read them to you earlier, uh, the, the words, put uh, my laws in their mind or write them in their hearts, is reversed. In verse uh, uh, 16 of chapter 10, it says, I will put my laws in their hearts. And in chapter 8 of Hebrews, I will put my laws in their minds. 
and write them in their hearts. And in verse 16 of Hebrews 10, I will write them in their minds. And I write them in their hearts and in their minds. Hallelujah. I will write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Either way, the point is the same. God writes in our minds and in our hearts. By his spirit. Hallelujah. And that's what the prophecy is all about. And the book of Hebrews is reminding the Jewish Christians that what they have experienced in the new birth and the infilling of the Holy Ghost is none other than the fulfillment of God's promise to them in the Old Covenant by many prophets. Not only Jeremiah, but also Ezekiel. And uh, so we get to that in a minute. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you give us clarity of mind, help us to understand your word and your perfect will, and let it bless us tonight and lead us and guide us in a straight and narrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the church say amen. amen. You may be seated. Praise God. So again... Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 through 12, this quote in Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 31 through 34. And uh, then, uh, in essence, uh, it's saying the same thing as, uh, as in Hebrews chapter 10. But listen to Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. A new heart will also I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So it's part and parcel of the same thing, whether Jeremiah or whether it's Ezekiel or whether it's in Hebrews, uh, again, referring to us in New Testament, that the Holy Ghost is for us. And God is a writer. Hallelujah. That's what I'm going to talk to you about. When God writes, when God writes. And uh, I can assure you that God is still writing today. We think that, well, he, he's written to us through many uh, writers, through uh, the Old and New Testament. Yes, but it is God who's the author, and he is the one that uh, inspires. And, and, uh, and there were times where he literally wrote, and I want to get on to that in just a moment. But uh, I want to, to encapsulate for you these important scriptures as to... Uh, what God is doing still today and how he does still write. Amen. In Ezekiel 36, we read, he says, I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. Stony heart doesn't really mean that you have a heart of stone. What it means is that like stone is resistant to writing and etching. It's not so easy to chisel and to write and inscribe something in a hard substance like stone. And when someone's heart is hardened and they're resistant to God's word, then it is a hardened, stony heart. And that's what's being described here. That I will, by my spirit, come on inside of you and I will soften that stony, resistant, hardened heart. And I will make it pliable so that I can write in there my laws. And I can cause you to actually want to do what my law is. In fact, this is what Philippians 2.13 is talking about. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's the Holy Ghost inside of you and me. Amen. Praise God. Now, again, God writes. He wrote in the past and he still does. Exodus 31.18, he wrote on stone. He gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon the Mount Sinai two tables of testimony 
tables of stone written with the finger of God. Before he broke these two tablets because he got mad at the Israelites and what they were doing with the golden calf and he threw that, those tables of, of stone down and broke, uh, they were written by the finger of God. The next time Moses had to cut the stone, he had to write it because God never told him to throw those tables of stone and break it. Amen. Nevertheless, God wrote the first set. Moses had to write the second set. But God did write on stone. In Daniel chapter 5, 5, he wrote on a wall to King Belshazzar. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. But granted, it doesn't say God, but it is God who's orchestrating his hand vision writing on the wall that an evil king saw. Can you imagine an evil king sees a supernatural divine manifestation of God? And I believe kings and rulers, presidents, governors can still get leadership and warnings from God himself directly. Belshazzar certainly did. And then in John chapter 8, now we'll get that in a little bit, Jesus, while he was in flesh, wrote on the ground in dirt or sand, if you please. It says in John 8, 6, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard. Amen. Again, in Hebrews 8, 10 and uh, uh, Hebrews 10, 14 both those scriptures told us that he still writes upon our hearts today by his spirit that's living on the inside of us. God is a writer. God is a writer, and he still is writing on the tables of our heart. Now, when you and I write, you know, we, I don't know about you, I tend to write on paper a lot. And if I want to remember some things, I write it on a list, a grocery list, reminders, things to do. Uh, I tend to use paper more than I do uh, a digital tablet, and I'm old school, and I'm not ashamed of it. Hallelujah. And I use, I use digital too, believe it or not. I have, I have on my phone, I have the things to-do lists and the memos and all that, and, and, uh, and I have uh, a lot of my, my, my messages and lessons saved, uh, both in email and backed up in other digital uh, memory banks. Hallelujah. And it's good to have. But for everyday use and just for expediency, I tend to use a piece of paper. Uh, and, uh, and then even then I forget. <laughs> Leaving my home, I call my wife. What's on that list? Praise God. Hallelujah. But, uh, but some things that, that we want to remember, uh, we, we write in stone, right? The tombstones, for example, we, we think of. Someone dies and, and you bury them in a certain place and you write their name, you write their date of birth and their day that they passed away and then sometimes they put an epitaph on there because they want, they want to be remembered and, and it's good to, to remember our loved ones and remember certain people and certain things, amen, that they have done. Memorials on statues. Uh, I've been to many memorials, even to parks and you have too. I took my, uh, my grandson out to the park just the other day in Waterloo and there was a there was a memorial there to all first responders, and they had plaques, they had names, and so on, and in honor of all those who have served and all those who have fallen. 
Stones of, uh, and planes and memorials of dedication and buildings. When you build a new building, you usually put a memorial dedication plate of uh, who uh, it was built to uh, the, the memory or the glory of. Amen. But God, God wrote the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were the basis of the expanded version that we read of in the Bible. The Ten Commandments didn't involve there's like 633 of the ordinances and different uh, layers of uh, the commandments. But the Ten Commandments of God was written in stone because God wanted us to remember it, particularly Israel. And when you look at commandment one, and we did a study on Ten Commandments. Uh, number one, thou shalt have no other God before me. There's only one God. Hallelujah. And so remember him because everything begins with God. There are not to be, there to be no graven images. Uh, be sincere and, and don't take the name of God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Honor your parents and honor human and value human life. Don't commit murder. Be faithful. Don't commit adultery. Respect others and don't steal from them. Uh, control your tongue and don't lie on them. Don't be a false witness. Master your carnal desires and, and so don't covet. Don't give in to these insatiable carnal desires for money and wealth and fame and and all those things that lead even Christians astray. But every Christian should allow the Holy Ghost to write these commandments on the tablets of our heart. The tables of our heart. Amen. So that uh, these laws would, would, would have its place in the inner man. In the inner man. Hallelujah. And if you want to just want something forgotten, well, just write it in the sand, write it in the dirt. The wind will blow it away by the seashore. The waves will wash it away, and nobody will see it or remember it anymore. Hallelujah. But interestingly, uh, that's what we see Jesus doing in John chapter 8. And I want to focus your attention on there for a few moments. I read this even this morning. Uh, I, I love this chapter. I really do, and I love this segment where this woman is caught in, uh, in adultery, and it just touches my heart every time. It, it just does, because it, it reveals to us the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Uh, I would say more than any other, but it certainly brings out uh, his, his attributes to such a degree that you don't see it in some of the other biblical stories. Uh, but it, here you are, a, a woman that's uh, caught in adultery, and... Uh, uh, it, 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 I, don't, I don't think there's any better example of, uh, of God's heart of love and, and fairness and mercy and justice and compassion. Amen. So I'd like to take a few minutes with this and look at the story. Uh, and as it does record the only time that Jesus ever wrote uh, in, while he was still in the flesh. Amen. So uh, John chapter 8, and I want to begin with verse 1. Jesus went uh, unto the Mount of Olives, and uh, early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, the woman, this woman, was taken in adultery in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. 
So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Wow. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. I want us to, to take a look at a couple of things when we look at this segment of 11 verses. Notice that this woman was brought to Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the, the priesthood in some respects, but the, the sects of, of strict observers, religious people, let's put it that way. It doesn't really say priests. It's, it's just religious observers, ardent, self-righteous uh, observers who thought that they had everything together and they had every right to look down on their noses and get on everybody else. And so these scribes and Pharisees brought unto Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they set her in their midst and, uh, and said, Master, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And they said, Now Moses... Uh, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Note that their attention was not really on the woman. The attention and focus was on Jesus. What do you say? All they were doing was using this woman and they're weaponizing the law (laughs) to unfairly bring justice And an execution, you know, people love a good execution. They like to gather together for hangings. They like to get together for, you know, for riots and things like that. They love to watch things be destroyed and burned. They like to watch a life burn up before them. And such was the case. The focus was not on the woman. It was on Jesus Moses commanded it to us. After all, it's in stone and it can't be changed, right? But what do you say? Jesus didn't say a word. He just stooped down. He didn't scream at the woman and say, did you really do this? What's the matter with you? You're an Israelite. You know better than that. You know, he didn't scold. He didn't say a word to her. He didn't say a word to the crowd. He didn't get angry. He didn't yell at anybody. He, in fact, just quietly, gently stooped down. Now, to me, that's, I think, really says a lot because he, he assumed that low posture and just kind of just, just assumed that low state of position where she felt. He was really, how should I say, he was... He, he, he was sympathizing with her in the condition that she was in. And she, I, he identified with the humiliation. And you, know, you know, Jesus comes down to our level. You know, he, he, he left 
heaven, as the song says, and well, he assumed human flesh. He didn't have to come down to humanity, but he did. An old psalmist says, he came down to my level when I couldn't come up to his. Remember that? Amen. But it's the truth. And he's exemplifying that here as well in this story. Jesus, uh, that woman just couldn't come up to his level. He's God, man of stuff. But he's coming down. He's stooping down. And he's just riding on the ground. And the Bible says they kept asking her, you know. But again, all he does is just keeps riding on the ground. You know, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. I was really captivated by the word feeling. I've, I've quoted it many times, but I've never thought about it like I did today. You know, we have feelings, and, and when we have afflictions, and when situations like this, a severe trial, our, our feelings are something incredible, and, and, and we're under pressure. We're, we're, we're hurting emotionally. But the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is a high priest that can be touched by our feelings. He knows what we feel. And he knows what you're feeling right now. If you're going something, through something tough and, and something hard, he knows what you're feeling. So again, Hebrews 4, 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Paul made reference to Jesus and his his gentleness, and he says, Now, I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he certainly displayed that and showed that to the crowd in this situation as well. And he, he kept, hallelujah, with his finger riding into the dirt. And no one really knows what he wrote. Uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of guesses and a lot of... Uh, speculation, but uh, it seems like he was addressing indeed the sins of all those who were present uh, and those who were accusing the woman. And uh, uh, he might have even wrote the, the consequences, uh, the judgments for those sins. We don't know. And yet at the same time, we see uh, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 11, that Jeremiah was writing prophetically to this particular point in time. And that, that prophecy says, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying against Israel. But he's prophesying ahead into the future as well to the time when a self-righteous backslidden Israel in the sense that they are religious and they have a, a, a religious forefront, but they really spiritually, uh, they're dead. And they're backslidden. And so Jeremiah is saying in the future to Jesus' day, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, meaning the dirt, the ground. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So it seems like this particular scripture was fulfilled at the time when Jesus was riding on the ground. So many, many uh, observers have, have, have uh, felt that this is really what Jesus was doing. He was writing their sins and the consequences for those sins and fulfilling prophecy at the same time. And so as he's writing, 
uh, the Bible says that they continued asking him. And as they continued asking him, he ignored them for a while. But then he stood up and said to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, he didn't continue standing. He didn't yell at him. He's still not angry. He didn't stare them down saying, he that is without stone, let him cast the first stone at her. He went back down the road. He stooped back down again. Hallelujah. Not ruffled. Oh, hallelujah. He wasn't angry. He just continued to do what he did before. Just continued writing. And instead of passing sentence on the woman, he really, by these actions, was passing sentence on the accusers. Jesus didn't say, don't execute her. He was saying that if you're going to do it, if you're going to exercise judgment, that you better do it right, better do it by the book, and you better do it fairly. Where's the man that did this? Because the law says both have to be involved in the judgment and execution of the sentence. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So by doing it this way, Jesus uh, exposed, uh, you know, that common sin in everybody. That we desire to, to punish other people's sins, which we do not see in ourselves. And that's in part what we addressed Sunday too, David in First Samuel chapter 12. And uh, hallelujah. And so, uh, praise, that's Second Samuel, by the way. Hallelujah. I'm messing up my scriptures again. So if you're taking notes, make sure you correct that. And so the Bible says, as he kept writing, the accusers left one by one from the elders to the youngers. And then in verse 10 and 11, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She answered, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and see sin no more. Jesus didn't condemn her, although he could have. He was the only one who was righteous and without sin. Instead, he chose to forgive. The Bible says in one place, Jesus knowing all things. He knew all things. He was the only one that was without sin among them. He could have thrown the first stone, but he didn't. If anybody could have thrown a stone at her, it was Jesus. And he chose not to. In fact, Jesus took her guilt upon himself. One commentator writes, The crowd knew the thrill of exercising the power to condemn, but Jesus knew the thrill of exercising the power to forgive. I like that. guy by the name of Barclay. But in a sense, you know, this really modeled the, uh, the scripture that Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1 and 2. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. It's the uh, kind of a sure mercies of David concept that we talked about Sunday as well. That God chose to judge David not by the letter of the law, for the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. God chose to judge David by the spirit of the law, not by the letter of the law. 
And this is what really what Paul is also talking about, Romans chapter 8. That the life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made us free from the law of sin and death. Praise God. Thank God. Hallelujah. Sin condemned us to death. But the born again process and experiencing new birth and regeneration, the infilling of the Holy Ghost has put us above our death sentence. He has delivered us from the power of the death, hell, and the grave. And he has put us on the pathway to eternal life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now, to, to be sure, Jesus not affirm this woman's lifestyle. And, uh, and he didn't tell her, well, now you're forgiven. Just go back to doing what you've been doing. No, he said, go and sin no more. Don't go back to your sinful lifestyle. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, now, as, as a, well, she supposedly had witnesses. But, you know, in the Old Testament, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, principle, uh, interesting thing that comes up in Num on Numbers chapter 5 that deals with uh, unfounded jealousy of a husband and the suspicion of sin. It's, it's if his husband, for example, suspects that his wife may have been unfaithful, then he can take her to the priest of the temple and he can put her through a certain ritual uh, which will tell if she is faithful or not. And uh, and this, uh, this is uh, kind of weird if you think about it, but it's the word of God. And so I, I do not speak against it to say the least, God forbid. Uh, but, but an accused wife of unfaithfulness who had no witnesses, and that's, that's really the, the remedy for, for a case like when there are no witnesses, but the husband suspects that she did something wrong, that she's been unfaithful. Well, they were supposed to do uh, certain things. And, and it, 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 when I began to study, it, it, it seems like it has an element uh, uh, that is worthy to look at and then respect that, uh, that this kind of a, uh, of a ritual that they went through was really God's way of providing a means to deal with jealousy in a home. It shows us really that God doesn't want married couples to be plagued by jealousy among themselves. Amen. He says, if you're jealous, I'm going to deal with it. I don't want the man to be angry and, and uh, be jealous unfoundedly, and neither do I want a woman to be accused unfairly and, and lawfully and go on to be living under condemnation and live under the fear and threat that my husband's going to divorce me and throw me out an accusation that I've been unfaithful when I have been living right. And so uh, God put this provision in the law to deal with jealousy. And they were, here's the procedure. Uh, the, the, the man who was jealous, he, he took his wife to the priest and he went and took a cup of holy water from the brazen laver that was already tainted with blood. It's, you know, once, once the priest... Uh, kill an animal and they have blood all over them. They wash their hands and so on in that brazen labor. And that water gets tainted with blood. Well, he was supposed to take a cup of that water tainted with blood. And then he was to take uh, a, a, a handful of dirt from the, from the floor of the tabernacle, put that in the cup, and then also uh, take a piece of paper, write with ink the sin that was named, and then you write, you, you pour a little bit of that water on top of that ink until it just, just diluted. Put all that into the cup, mix it up, and then have the woman drink it. 
And ahead of time before she drinks it, the priest will say, well, understand, if, if uh, something happens to you, well, then you're guilty, you're cursed. If you're innocent, nothing will happen, will, you'll be blessed. And that's exactly how, how they did it. And, uh, and when they take that piece of paper and, and the ink and, and uh, the sin on the paper and the water and the dust and all that that's mixed together, that was referred to as the bitter cup. You ever hear that? The bitter cup. The bitter cup that Jesus drank. The Garden of Gethsemane. So the woman drinks the cup. Uh, the cup and uh, if there's no ill effects, the woman's cleared, as innocent, and she's blessed. But if she's guilty, then her belly swells. Her thigh rots. She's not going to be able to bear children afterwards. She's found guilty, and a curse is pronounced on her. Now, full disclosure... It seems like there's not one example in the Bible where they have ever, ever performed this. Uh, Nor is there an example, really, I was just thinking about today, where, where any woman or a man was executed or stoned to death because of adultery. And, and I think part of that is because, as even today in a court of law, it's hard to find witnesses. You need at least two witnesses. Amen. But then I thought about it. Praise the Lord. You know, Brother Brian? Amen. I'm not saying this to you. I'm just. I'm... <laughs> okay. Sister Melissa. Dory. How the Sister Switzer. <laughs> Gary Anders and JR and Drake. I'm telling this to everybody. Okay. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm just sharing. I was just thinking today that I, we don't read an example when anybody was executed for, for adultery. But I do find where a man was executed because in Jericho, the first of ten cities that they came to occupy and, and fight against in the promised land, the tenth, the first, hallelujah, Jericho was the first of the big ten cities that they were to throw down and occupy and fight against and win. And the Bible says that God commanded Joshua to make sure that he tells the people, everything in that city belongs to me. If anybody takes anything from that, it belongs to me. It's mine, and you'll be cursed. Hallelujah. And so in that first of ten cities, remember what Achan does. He takes a wedge of gold. He takes some Babylonian garment, and I don't know what else. Hallelujah. And he takes it. His family knew about it, but he took it. He put it in his tent, buried it in the ground, and then nobody knew about it. But the next battle they went into, into the, into the city of Ai, Israel lost, I don't know how many men. They only sent, I think, uh, 3,000 men uh, based upon the spies' reports that, that came back with and said, hey, it's no biggie. We can do it. There only 3,000 people. And they lost, I think, like 36 people. And he said, whoa, what happened? And Joshua's laying on the ground all night, all day long, and, and everybody's praying. What's going on, God? Didn't you give us that city? And then the Lord speaks and says, get up. There's sin in the camp. And so uh, Joshua says, what? Sin in the camp? You know the story? Then he cast lots on the lot. My family, my tribes, it fell on Achan. He said, all right, son, fess up. And he told him what he did. And then when he confessed and all his family with him. They took him outside of the camp of Israel, and there they stoned him, his family, 
his animals, everything, because of the sin that, uh, that they brought upon Israel and defeat and shame in the face of the surrounding enemies. Because now they just made their, uh, their life harder in trying to win the other areas of the promised land because of the other nations here that, hey, the Israelites are defeatable. We can beat these people. We can defeat them. If the, if the people of Ai can do it, we can do it. But uh, we find that the next time that Israel goes up to Ai, they take 30,000 men instead of 3,000. Ten times as many. There's another lesson and a moral to that, but we'll leave it at that. The point is that there's an example of somebody being executed, not just him, but his whole family, for taking the tenth, <laughs> but not for adultery. Whew. Now, that's not my intended lesson. But I will say that uh, that, that gave me cause for pause. Hmm, I like that alliteration. That kind of cause for pause. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Accident, I sure. Amen. Hallelujah. But in any case, um, you know, this, this bitter cup, I, I'm just so glad that, that Jesus took that bitter cup with me. You know, I was thinking about that. Um, God is a jealous God. He created all the world. He created all the nations of the world. And futuristically speaking, he, he looked forward and, des and designed this whole plan of a church, his bride, and him being the bridegroom. And so, as we know from the Old Testament, God says, I'm a jealous God. He said that to Israel all the time. I'm a jealous God. You say love me, but you know, you're running around with all these, these false idols that claim to be God. Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech. They're not gods. And here you're doing all kinds of things for them and, and you're, you're treating me second class. And, you know, you say you don't love anyone else but me. And here you have all these false gods. I'm a jealous God. My feelings are hurt. And I get angry when you do that. And in essence, that's really what he did with the Gentile nations to remember God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all people. He created us all. And when he created mankind in the garden, there was no Hebrew or Gentile. There was only man or woman. The whole world is his. And he created all of the world's population to populate heaven. And so he's jealous. These, all these Gentiles, it's bad enough when his people Israel did it, who he created just to prove the, to, the, to the wandering world that, that there's only one God. And, and when they turn his back, well, he's really upset. But to the Gentiles, now he's, he came to us and sought us on Calvary. That was the purpose of God dying forever. God so loved the world, not just Israel, that he gave his only begotten Son, whomsoever should believe in should not perish but have everlasting life. That was for the whole world, not just for Israel. So God is a jealous God even over the Gentiles, who he said at one point in prophesying, upon whom my name is called. Well, back in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the jealous God, he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is this bitter cup of jealousy? Hallelujah. And he knew that his church to be is not going to be able to drink that bitter cup. So he decided to drink it for us that he may take the curse and let his church take the blessing. That's how much he loves us. 
Hallelujah. I'm so glad he loves us. Aren't you? Stand with me if you will. Hallelujah. Praise God. He loves and he forgets. He forgives the sin and he forgets. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, God is good. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What a great God. What a great God we have. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. One point the Bible tells us that we'll cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Another place tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. Or he cast his sins behind him never sees it anymore. God's memory is wiped clean when it comes to his forgiveness of our sins. He remembers it no more. I'm so glad that he forgave me. I remember when I repented of my sins. This month is going to be, what, 48 years, August 24th, 1975. When I repented of my sins and was baptized in Jesus' name, I remember coming down to the front. I remember to this day the, the, the feeling of his touch, his presence. His presence, it was as if he put his arms around me. It was so real. It's so warm. It was so special. The first time I have ever repented on my knees before God and I didn't care there were over a thousand people there. I, I don't even know how many people were there. I know they were uh, they were running over twelve right at that time, twelve hundred people every Sunday. But it was only him and me. And Brother Cornish who prayed with me. He prayed with me. The man who led me to the Lord. But like Jesus stooped with that woman, he stoops with every one of us. He identifies with every one of us. And there's no one that's too far gone. There's no one that's beyond his reach. I know there are a lot of backsliders that have gone out from this church. A lot of prodigals. We have a lot of prodigals. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Amen. We still need to pray. Because God is a loving God. He is so loving. He's so merciful. We just... We just cannot fathom how merciful and how forgiving our God is. Hallelujah. I, I want to be able to, to forgive easily because he easily forgives us. I think he wants us to be the same way with each other. 
But what we need in the world today, but especially among ourselves in this church, folks, I really feel what we need to, what we need to do more than anything is show our love to one another. We need to show love towards each other. We need love. Hallelujah. Oh, would you just, in your own way, just reach out to God right now. If it's raising your hands, fine. Just pause there. Soak God's presence. Let Him talk to you. Let Him write on the tables of your heart. What's He want to write? Are you resistant to what He wants to put there? Jesus, hallelujah. Oh, Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you need forgiveness of sins, it's yours. You need mercy, it's yours. You need a refreshing renewing of the Holy Ghost, it's yours. God is here. Oh, He is, he is gracious and willing to abundantly pardon. Oh, yes, He is. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, God, cleanse us from all evil and all unrighteousness. Oh, How great is our God. Sing. 